Voice Nation. Greetings and salutations, Device Nation. You're home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is Medical Device Sales with ideas, stories, and interviews to help take you from good to great. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of Acapulco Gold in times of skunkweed. Wait, what? I hope you're having a great day. Hope you had a great week. I know I did, and today is going to be awesome. We're going to go sky high in Colorado and talk with Dr. Jason Jennings, talking about his life, his career, medical marijuana. I believe him to be the industry expert on the subject, and we're going to tap into that knowledge today. Hope you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving this week. I was at the grocery store today loading up on a few things, as was a million other people, and things got a little dicey. People were tense. The lady behind me in line practically had a cow catcher on the front of her cart and was pushing me through my transaction. When the card reader said, please remove your card, I went to grab it, and I, I had to get out of the way because she was coming. She's like, you're done. Now get out of here. As we prepare to ingest 4,500 calories along with 200 grams of fat, according to most studies, maybe we should take a tip from some of these professional leaders on how to pregame, how to get ready for this, stretch that stomach out so it just doesn't wipe us out, right? Drink a gallon of water in less than a minute. I don't even know how these people do these things. One guy was talking about eating six to eight pounds of broccoli and cauliflower and then eat it in about 20 minutes just nuts. Although many Thanksgivings, I actually felt like I ate six to eight pounds of broccoli and cauliflower and washed it down with a gallon of water. Why do we do these things? Well, here's some interesting Thanksgiving trivia for you. I I wonder if you knew that the person who wrote Mary Had a Little Lamb was responsible for making Thanksgiving an official holiday. Her name was Sarah Hale. She petitioned the government for 17 years, and Abraham Lincoln finally said, enough already, in 1863, and gave her her wish and made it a national holiday. Here's another good one. Why do we have football on Thanksgiving? Well, it started because the owner of the Detroit Lions wanted to promote the game in his baseball-obsessed city and convinced NBC to broadcast the game. And ever since that first broadcast in 1934, the Lions have played on every Thanksgiving except during World War II. Wow. Here's a fun fact. Black Friday isn't just a big day for retailers. Plumbers report the 24 hours following Thanksgiving to be their busiest day of the year. And quite honestly, I don't even want to know why. What I do want to know is who's bringing the pumpkin pie and did they use nutmeg? Oh my gosh, nothing ruins a perfectly good pumpkin pie like that infernal spice nutmeg. Don't do it. Don't do it. You bring me a piece of pumpkin pie with no nutmeg and slather it all in Cool Whip. You are my friend for life. Before we leave the subject of Thanksgiving, the Turkey Talk Line Butterball entertains 100,000 turkey-related questions. I just look at that and go, really? I hope that I'm responsible for a few. Over the years, I've convinced more than a few nurses as the conversation in the OR was, you know, how do you do your turkey? Well, we smoke it. Well, we do it in a bag. We just bake it in the oven. And and I would like to mess with uh, some of the younger ones and say, I I boil mine. You know, I do a, a brine and I just boil it right in the brine. I said it just seals in the juices. And more than a few walked away from me actually believing that's what I did. So if I'm responsible for one or two calls out of all that, can you boil a turkey? I would feel like I accomplished something in my life. Well, somebody who's accomplished quite a bit in his life is Dr. Jason Jennings. Really enjoyed my conversation with him, and I know you will as well. Let's just jump right into it. Dr. Jennings, thank you so much for coming on to talk about your life. I look forward to asking you about putting the joint in joint pain, and we all know that's about medical marijuana. You're John Insall Fellowship, a doctorate in physical therapy. But first, I'd like to go back to Gainesville, Florida. What put you on the path to medicine and ultimately a career as an orthopedic surgeon? Well, that, that's a great question. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, yeah, it's it's kind of a long path, unlike other people that go into medicine and know they want to do something. I'd gone to the University of Florida for mainly for education and um, had thought about potentially leaving and, and uh, walking on to a smaller uh, Division two or three football school, which I, I had some offers where I declined. And 
I started training and I, I met some people playing rugby and started playing rugby there and ended up playing rugby for four years. It was fantastic. I, I had a knee injury and I actually got into physical therapy from there. And, um, I was a physical therapist for four years and practiced in sports medicine. And, and I actually did a fellowship at a university of Wisconsin lacrosse and, uh, was with the physical therapy program and there was a fantastic clinic called uh, Gunderson Lutheran sports medicine there that at the time there was about five fellowships in the United States for, for, for physical therapy, which are now all over the place, but it was kind of in its infancy. And I had great mentors there. I, I had uh, met some physicians and I'd never been into surgery and, and started doing surgical stuff. And that kind of really launched my interest into orthopedic surgery uh, from physical therapy and uh, athletic training and then into the, the operating room. So a little bit of a long path, but uh, well worth it and, and um, has met a lot of nice people along the way and in both physical therapy and in medicine. I'm a little late to the game on rugby, but I've absolutely fallen in love with it, uh, as I have been with lacrosse. So tell me, what position did you play, and uh, are you still passionate about it? Yeah, I, I can talk rugby all day. So uh, it, it's, a, it's a fantastic sport. I'll tell you that my best friends in life, while I, I have many fantastic people that I've met in orthopedic surgery, uh, and a lot of my fellow uh, colleagues may be listening to this, they're great friends, but they can never top the relationships I've made um, with my mates in, uh, in rugby. So they're still my best friends in life. And we talk all the time and get together. And um, while we may still be older, all of us are still really passionate about it. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a sport that uh, in America is really starting to gain traction. In fact, I live in Denver and it's, it's the largest uh, outdoor rugby stadium that's privately owned is here. And um, it's in Glendale, Colorado, which is uh, basically a sister city of Denver. And, and um, you know, I played outside center, which uh, at the time uh, I was probably, I'm about 160 pounds. Now I was about 190 pounds then. And I was a little undersized, but I'll tell you uh, with, as you've seen in all athletics, people get bigger and bigger. That that position now is, is people weigh about 220 or 230. So I think my days, if I had to play now, I, I certainly wouldn't have played that position anymore. I'm probably a little too small. So uh, my passion continues for it, but my son is 10. He's been playing since he was five. Uh, he plays a position called scrum half, which is kind of like the quarterback. And um, he plays over for actually the Glendale Raptors team. He started tackle two years ago. And uh, I go to all of his games and the professional teams come here. So I've stayed really active in our community uh, in, in the Denver area with it. So it's 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 something I, I still love to do. I, I don't play anymore, but I, I spend a lot of time on the pitch and I try to give a lot of time back into rugby still. So my whole life, I've seen that bumper sticker: "Give blood, play rugby." Uh, a lot of truth to that. My, my, my son has the shirt. <laughs> He's got it. so, but you know, my wife's a little uh, nervous with it. It's it's he, they do a fantastic job with teaching the kids at a young age of how to play. It, you know, it's called a gentleman's sport. Uh, you know, there's uh, great respect for your opponents uh, in in the game and the history of the game. And I'll tell you that the life lessons you learn from it, I mean, there's there's team sports, but you really cannot play rugby without all 15 people on the same page if you want to have a good team. And so um, um, for me, and it certainly taught me a lot, and I think it's hopefully transitioned over to my, to my boy. I teach him a lot of things, but I, I think the being on the field with other people and having to, to do those activities together is 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 meaningful, so. You ended up at Duke uh, for your residency. That's kind of my old stomping ground. And a surgeon I particularly look up to in that area is Dr. Bolognese, the chair of the department. Did you get a chance to work with him and tell me about your time at Durham? I, I could talk about rugby all day, but I, I, I may be able to talk about my, my life at Duke a little bit longer. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm so thankful for everyone there. I mean, I, I can just tell you that Specifically for Mike Bolognese, uh, he, he's not just my mentor. He's he's a lifelong friend, and, and he's really helped me through uh, the process and residency and fellowship. And uh, he is one of the nice people you ever meet, always encouraging, uh, you know. And I, I think what makes good surgeons and, and, and good people are sharing things that sometimes are hard and like complications and, and Hey, look, I've done this before. And, and you know, he, he did that in residency and I've, I've called him as an attending uh, early and probably still talk to him at conference and say, I did this. He's like, Oh, I've done that before. And he's not afraid to, to air some of the, the things that he's done or experienced, uh, some of which are obviously on our fault, but just things that happen and, and get you through that process. He's done a 
not just a Duke, but just a fantastic job for the field of orthopedic surgery. I mean, he's, he's been a leader with uh, AUKUS and, you know, a president last year and has done a lot for us politically in Washington, DC, which, you know, that's a thankless job. And, and th- th- to be quite honest, I, I do as best I can. I probably looking at Mike, I probably need to do more. Um, and I, and I think all of us probably could take something from him from that. And, you know, just to, to dovetail on that and piggyback on it, you know, other mentors at Duke, just not only in the arthroplasty program, but just all around top to bottom, um, just classy folks. I mean, they're really good with education. I personally think it's the best residency in the United States of America. Well, I, I'm sure there's others that can that argue uh, likewise for their programs, but I wouldn't uh, trade my experience there for anything. So I'm still thankful. Keep up with the, the, those people. And similar to rugby, I mean, you know, those the, the group of uh, folks at Duke, we, we get together uh, each year. They're called the Piedmont meeting, and you get to see people from all subspecialties. You have, uh, you know, surgeons that you may have never worked with. It might be 10, 15 years your senior that you become great friends with, which which, which I have. Uh, and and um, our families get together, and, and it's a very nice special bond that I think is very unique. Uh, really attracted me to the program. Um, I you know, I think in life we all seek mentors, but you, you also want to seek friendships. And, and I, th- I think you get both of that from that institution. So very thankful I was able to be part of something special. Dr. Insall is quite the hero of mine. And what an honor for you to have been selected for the uh, prestigious Insall Traveling Fellowship. Tell me about your experience. Yes. Uh, thank you for asking. I, I, I First and foremost, anyone listening to this who is considering doing it. I, I, you should put it high on your list as one of one one of your goals as an orthopedic surgeon, whether it's the Insult Traveling Fellowship or, or some of the other ones that are offered between hip and knee. Um, it, it's a great experience. It, it, I knew that it was going to be good, but until you do something, you you, you kind of you look back and you're like, God, it, it, this was a, a great experience. And I think the hardest thing is is you know for me, I had two kids and my wife who's just so supportive uh and and that actually you know helps but it's hard to you know hey babe i'm gonna leave you know practice for five and a half weeks and travel with some people and you know probably go out and have a good time for a while and and learn a lot and you're gonna be home with the kids (laughs) you know that's a it, it, it actually wasn't a hard sell but it's 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 hard to be away from the family so i think that's one thing but i'll tell you it's worth it. They make it very family friendly. You still get to talk to your families. And, you know, for those, I know there's probably people listening that may be worried about that. You know, your family meets you, you know, halfway in New York and you get to spend the week with your, 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 your significant other. So it, it, it's, it's very interesting because you go to all these places and you get to see all these unique things. And it, it, it changed my practice in a lot of ways. And in a lot of ways you look at it and you say, you know, I, I do know what I'm doing. Not that you didn't know, but you kind of, you watch people operate and, and you might think, God, I, I wouldn't have done it that way, but that, that's something maybe I'll incorporate. And you, you take some little things and it could be as simple as how to set up the back table in your operating room, right? Or, or geez, they, they close the wound with that extra layer. Maybe, maybe I should do that. I've had some problems with some wound healing with some, you know, maybe some bigger patients and you pick brains, right? And, and then, and then you create the, the fellowship and it's, I've, I've, you know, I traveled with, um, you know, three different people. Um, uh, Giuseppe uh, Longo from uh, um, uh, Italy and uh, Shinichiro uh, from uh, Japan and then Matt Abdel from the Mayo Clinic. Just as a side, I've been to Japan. I taught in Japan recently and I visited uh, Shinichiro and his family uh, for a couple of days, which was nice. That was part of my trip. I went to Italy a few years ago and I visited Giuseppe when I was there. And then Matt Abdel has been um, uh, my close friend and colleague um, uh, uh, since then. So I, I talk to Matt you know, quite often. And in fact, I was just texting with him about um, uh, some things the other day. And our families know each other and we kind of chat about things like that. So, you know, the relationships I created there, again, back to the, the mentorship, the bonding and, and the brotherhood uh, of, of, of the Insult Fellowship is great. And so, you know, the other nice thing is that you, a lot of these people may know you or other surgeons may know you from your papers or maybe they heard your name. You know, my, my senior partner is Doug Dennis. So they, they may have fully like, hey, Jason Jennings, Colorado, Jordan Place. But they get to know who I was. I get to know who they are. And I go to national conferences and meetings. I see them now. And, and you know, you, you've created that relationship. So it's that bond that's there and, and that opens up doors for relationships with them. And some of those folks have sent me people for potential fellowship. Right. So they'll send me a line and say, hey, 
you know, glad you're doing well. We have a fantastic, and, and you know, those people you've been in their operating room, you know, that there's good surgery going on at their institutions and that they have good residencies or fellowships. And so I think just those relationships that you create over time um, are, are priceless. So I'd encourage anyone that's considering to do it, do it. It certainly for me was an honor because I know there's many great applicants that either applied before or after. And um, uh, it's it's something that, that, that I hope that everyone would be able to experience, whether they're in arthroplasty or some other field. So I'm glad you brought up Dr. Dennis, because my next question was, what led you to the Rockies for your joint replacement fellowship at Colorado Joint Replacement? And I guess on a personal note, what motivated you to stay on and, and call Denver home? Thanks for bringing up my partner, Doug. I, I He's He's my friend. He's a father figure, and he's just been the the best senior partner that, I, with all due respect to other surgeons out there, that I think I could ever have. So, uh, I I was actually looking at fellowships. I didn't know much about this fellowship, and, and honestly, I was going to cancel the interview uh, because you know I, I was at Duke and had interviews, and finances you know are tight, and you can only do so much. And I went and talked to Sam Wellman, who is a, a friend and mentor, and, and Mike Bolognese, and they said. You can not cancel this one. That is one that I think will fit your personality, you know, fit what you want out of your your career, and you should go and consider that. You know, at the time I thought I I want to be academic, but I my personality I just didn't want to be at an academic institution, or at least I didn't think I did. But they thought that hey, this would be a good fit for me. We had a there was a um, a Duke resident uh, probably seven or eight years before me, Joshua Carruthers, who came here. So I had the opportunity to talk to him on the phone ahead of time. And, and you know, uh, Josh has become a friend and he's uh, gave me some advice. And and so, you know, you start putting all this together and I came to interview here. It just it seemed to be the, the right fit for me. And, and I, again, fortunate enough to to come out and, and match in my fellowship as it is a match process. So they got to like you and you got to like them, as you know. Um, I, I was here for several months and I think a lot of things in life are, you, you work very hard for, but some things are timing, as you know, and, um, they had a, a partner who had retired in, um, right before I got here, it was a planned retirement. And I think he had, he had stopped the year before his name was Brian Haas, um, who was a fantastic uh, contributor into the De- Denver area academically and clinically. And, and, uh, there was a, a void, um, with, uh, just a need for another surgeon, uh, offered me the position and, and, uh, uh, so far it's been happily ever after since, you know, I've been here since tw- my fellowship started in 2014. So I've been here since then. So, um, like I said, I'm v- very thankful to be here. It's a, I think, uh, we have a fantastic institution to put a plug out for our fellowship. Our, our fellows seem to like it. They, they give us good feedback and I, I think they get a, a really nice operative experience with regards to, uh, uh, operating, learning the operation with both primary revision surgeon uh, surgery from multiple surgeons, having the chance to do academics in a, in a quote unquote non-academic institution. So we're kind of private So they, they kind of get the mix of both. And I'll tell you, if, you know, D- Doug Dennis has been, you know, here in Denver for 30 years, his, you hear him on the podium, you hear him talk and his passion. I can honestly tell you, we, we should all strive to be like him because his passion is 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 like this every single day in clinic, and he really truly loves what he does. He loves to teach. Uh, we all obviously have our own bias, right? So, uh, but uh, he really tries to take a step back and and look at all angles and and really teach people of not just how to be a a good surgeon, but how to be a good husband. You know, how to be a good person in life, how to be a good contributor. I mean, his contributions into orthopedic surgery i mean can't be overstated he he's done so much for operation walk denver chapter as i know other operation walk chapters have done but i mean his his personal donations into our chapter are are, are beyond words he um and he's he's just a, a a very giving person all the time all around and his new thing is he has a garden and so he gives he brings in all the stuff that he, he's been growing and and he'd be happy to know that he he brought me some. I actually haven't told him, but he brought us a tomato plant, and we planted it, and we just ate his tomatoes last night in our salad. So I, I haven't seen. He wasn't here today. I think he's off today. But I, I'm gonna have to tell him that we just picked his tomatoes out of our yard. So there's always something he's given. So he's a great person, and anyone that hasn't had the opportunity to talk to him, I, I'd encourage you to grab him at a meeting. He's very approachable, and and uh, he's he's somebody we all can learn from. 
Before we get into your practice, I want to ask you a question about your PT experience. A surgeon I worked with once had a son that just graduated with his doctorate in that field and said it was an insanely rigorous program. In many ways, it was like a residency itself. A, was that your experience? And B, uh, how has it complemented your role as an orthopedic surgeon? Yeah, so I, I was the first uh, doctor of physical therapy class. The, the, there used to be, it was bachelor's of physical therapy in the 70s, 80s-ish, then it moved over to master's. And then um, in the early 2000s, really, when people started transitioning over to the doctorate, I was um, uh, the first doctorate class in, in the institution I went to. So, uh, yeah, it's very rigorous. I mean, to, to get into PT school, I mean, I, it's... It's, I would say, in line with kind of the medical education. I mean, you have to obviously do well in school, and then you have to test well on 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 your on your exams going in. Um, and and it's it's fairly rigorous. It is. I mean, but it's more anatomy based, right? Anatomy and physiology. So right. I think coming out of it, you know, you go to medical school and you have your six weeks crash course in anatomy. You get your cadavers, you do everything, and then you learn on the go. This is all musculoskeletal, right? So it's learning every muscle and attachment origin insertions and really being a pioneers in musculoskeletal uh, specialty and 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 then physiology is a big part of it too so i mean i think you you know my undergraduate was exercise physiology so that transition was maybe a little easier for me with some of the physiology just because the understanding the basic concepts there but it goes into a lot more depth um and yeah, I, I would say the, the education is fairly, I, you know, I've been out of the game for quite some time, obviously, with regards to that education. But the process, at least when I did it, was, I would say, on course with the uh, amount of work, but it just in a shorter period of time. I think medical school is a little bit different because it's 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 a longer game. It's it's usually, you know, double that time, you know. It's two two and a half years for PT school and you get four years of medical school. And I think medical school, they, they just cram so much stuff in so quickly. So it's not just one thing you're learning. It's, you know, a lot more. So a little bit different, but a similar concept, I think. So tell me about your practice these days, Dr. Jennings. Uh, what are you doing on any given week? Uh, and what do you love to do in particular? The love actually changes each 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 week, probably. I mean, it, it, it kind of just depends what I'm doing. So I mean, some days you like doing hips a little better, some days knees. I, I do, you know, I, I'm a combination of everything. So I think I'm probably 15 to 20 percent of my practice is revision surgery. Uh, I, I love doing revisions. I, I, I think they're 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 challenging in their own way. I think there's not just the the surgeon challenge, but it's the the mental and physical thing with the, the patient, right? So I've, I think I've over the years have developed uh, the way I talk to patients and treat them a little different because I've, I've realized that you know the mental psyche of the patient is a large part of what we do in those because they they went into a surgery thinking they're going to get one thing and they they come out with you know an infection or or some sort of, um, I, I, I don't want to say uh, a broken part or anything, but they, they just have something wrong that needs to be fixed. And that's not what, you know, Bob, Jane, or Sally had, right? They were perfect and the patient wants to be perfect. So uh, we, have a we have a large catch area in Denver. I mean, you know, the, 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 this, the population density in Colorado, you know, is centered only in a few spots. So there's a lot of cities that, 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 that have folks, but they don't do revisions and that things get sent to us. Um, from quite a ways away, and Colorado is a fairly large state. I mean, example, Telluride is is you know six and a half, seven hours away on a drive. So um, then we have you know Wyoming, North Dakota, South Dakota, you know Western Kansas, Nebraska. So a lot of things get sent to us, um, and so that 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 creates um, a lot of revision surgeries for us. So not all of them are from the Denver metro. So we have a very large catch area. Uh, I, I do primary hip and knee replacement. Uh, I, I do um, uh, partial knee replacements as well. I probably do more than any. I, I, I'm pretty sure I'm still doing more than anyone in the practice as far as unicompartmental arthroplasties. I, 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 I try to find more, and, uh, but uh, there's a lot of lateral patellofemoral disease and a lot of uh, post-traumatic ACL stuff here from from uh, ski injuries and things like that, which creates a little bit of a different animal with uh, ACL insufficiency and, and things like that. So. Um, General arthroplasty practice. I do some basic trauma, so I take about seven days of call, voluntary call for my my hospital here, the ER call, and then my, my the fellows. We have, I have two fellows take about ten days of call. So I, I do hip fractures. I do an occasional basic ankle fracture, but we mainly do hip fractures, intertrochanteric fractures, and and uh, total hip or hemiarthroplasty. So I probably do forty to sixty of those a year. 
and and I find those those fun cases to do, and it helps build your practice as well because a lot of those patients may need another hip or knee or something else in the future. So, um, you know, we have uh, two fellows here uh, a year uh, that we take. Uh, this year we have a, a fellow from Emory, Greg Kirkus, and then one from uh, University of Iowa, which is uh, Jessel Owens. Uh, they're both doing a fantastic job. Uh, we, we have a research uh, a team here, uh, three full-time uh, research staff. Um, we, we pride ourselves, but we have our, our head research uh, um, manager, which is uh, Roseanne Johnson, has been here since she started right around the time I did. She's been here six or seven years, and she is just outstanding. I, I can't – you can look at my CV. You can look at Doug's CV, and, and I can tell you that we've done a lot of work, but most of it is not accomplished without her because she really is our team captain and leader. So – uh, and then we have two research assistants um, that are full time. And typically we hire people trying to get into medical school or, you know, nursing school and things like that. We've been pretty proud to be able to place people essentially each year in, in whatever specialty they came here for. They get great research experience. We typically get them on a paper or two and we, we provide mentorship uh, uh, for them. So I got four other partners here. They're all fantastic. I mean, I, we all do the same thing. And uh, hip and knee arthroplasty and, and, and we stay pretty busy so we have a nice relationship uh, we all get together uh, obviously without with covid here it's 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 not the way it used to be but pre-covid our families get together and we do journal clubs once a month which are uh, i think one of the highlights of our practice because we usually spend a couple hours each night with um uh, our journals and find wine from at doug's house at least and he always makes fun of me because i like beer but um we have the, the, the brews at my house. So um, it's, it's a, I think, a fantastic situation. And, and Denver's a great place to live. We got great weather and uh, the mountains are not that far away and, and a, lot of outdoor, a lot of outdoor activities. So I'm right there with you, doctor. I discovered a fat tire many, many, many years ago out in Denver, actually. Mm-hmm. And my wine days were officially over after that. So. I'm, yeah, I understand. Yeah. So I, I want to step into the clinical corner for a minute with you and, and just talk about things going on in your OR and your thoughts about some of the things that you're you're cited on publication wise. You partnered with Dr. Dennis on a few papers that I really enjoyed reading. One detailed a significant cause of patient dissatisfaction post TKA, and that word is arthrofibrosis. So are there any markers for susceptibility to this? And number two, uh, interest intraoperative strategy for dealing with it? And I guess number three, why is there such a high rate of reoperation and complications with these patients? And they're great questions. I don't think I can give you a, a firm answer on any, but I'll tell you that uh, there's a lot of people from a basic science standpoint. Uh, Matt Abdel, my you know co-fellow on the Insult Traveling Fellowship, has dedicated much of his time in the, in the basic laboratory area tr- trying to really find out uh, if if there are uh, preoperative markers, postoperative markers, and really things we can do to identify these patients, I, I mean, I think in the end, there are the, the, the idiopathic cases of arthrofibrosis. Of look, the parts put in fine. It's you know everything seems to be okay. They did on the patient, and they did everything they can do, and they end up with a stiffer knee. And, and we really don't understand. There's probably something you know, hopefully a handful of years from now that we can figure out or maybe identify those patients before surgery to either not do surgery on them or do something different uh, with them to, to try to avoid that. There, there's certainly patients have had uh, potentially surgical errors or maybe uh, subtle infection or, or something that we can identify that we can fix such as uh, instability or, you know, a femoral component rotation or a tibial component rotation that we can fix. Those patients may do better. I mean, I think in the end, you know, surgical tips that, that I always tell my fellows is is really exposure, exposure, exposure. I mean, those are the patients that, you know, their range of motion is limited. Our data would suggest that in the end, they get about 15 degrees range of motion. Um, the Mayo Clinic had looked at using hinge prosthesis, and I believe their data is about 20 degrees. They get uh, increased average. So you do the revision surgeries, and, and they're, they're not bending their knee back to their butt, but they get some more functional range. But intraoperatively, exposure-wise, I mean, they're and even post-op, but they're a significant risk for you know tendon injuries, particularly extensor mechanism injuries, which is a horrible thing to have uh, in the setting of any total knee, particularly an arthrofibrotic knee. So you know, going into those patients, you really have to pay particular attention to the soft tissue structures. Really make sure you're getting a good exposure in these patients, and 
unfortunately, I would say I think we've done a better job overall, but we haven't really eliminated arthrofibrosis, and particularly those patients that come in with arthrofibrosis. They're not the happiest patients in the end. A lot of times, if we can get them to be able to do stairs or maybe get around on a bicycle, uh, that that's a big win for them from a functional standpoint. But um, it, it's still certainly a, a problem that we see, albeit rare or not as common as other things. Uh, when you do see these problems, it, it's very hard for for not the, the patient, the family, and also maybe the surgeon that did the case as well, who who may have done a great job with the case. Another paper had you looking at coronal alignment, in particular kinematic alignment, and as we chase a solution for the twenty percent of patients that are not satisfied uh, post TK. Any thoughts on this strategy, or is the jury still out? Well, I I think that there are people. If you take a step back who only want to do kinematic alignment, I think there are people who say, no, we need mechanical neutral. I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle. I, I think I think mechanical neutral probably works for a lot of people. I think kinematic alignment probably works for a lot of people, but, but neither of them have clearly been shown to be the end all be all. So, I mean, I think that I think the biggest thing I, I, I typically do with patients is, look, if someone came packaged with a big varus alignment, the last thing you want to do is make them valgus, right? So, I mean, leaving them in a little bit of constitutional varus or the valgus patient, maybe in a degree or two of valgus, a couple degrees may be advantageous for them. I don't think we've identified who's going to benefit from what, right? So, I, I think there's probably more work to be done. I think what that would take is is more people willing to do one or the other and maybe prospectively randomize uh, uh, these patients to really answer to the question and, and or find patients and identify risk factors that uh, can, can help a certain patient population that may be at risk uh, to, to be dissatisfied with their knee arthroplasty procedure. I mean, if you look at the, you know, my, my, my concept's always been if I look at a a perfectly healthy, you know, 16 year old, and I, and I do a ligamentous exam, they open more laterally than medially. The, the lateral complex is a, is a little looser compared to medial in most, most patients. And so I, th- I think in, in my operating room, I, I will err on the side of leaving somebody, uh, you know, uh, a little bit lax and not, not 10 degrees or anything, but a millimeter or two laxity laterally. Sometimes you just can't chase in these big various knees. And those patients do fine. You, that's the balance for that knee. That's where that needs to live for 40 or 50 years in some of these patients with some constitutional bears. So I think taking on a case-by-case basis uh, for me has been helpful. Uh, I, I certainly think there are people that can uh, probably advantageous for them, particularly from a balancing standpoint where you don't have to release every single structure. You know, Aaron Hoffman, you know, we've talked about him earlier, has, has left people with some constitutional barriers and had tremendous results with long-term results with his uh, total knee arthroplasty patients. And his, his career has, has been fantastic. And he certainly has the data to prove that. And there's other people that are doing kinematic alignment. We, we kind of talk about kinematic alignment with some some borders and boundaries, right? So, I mean, I think that there's there's probably somewhere in between and, and we haven't really identified who's going to really be the patient who may benefit from one or the other. So I think there's just a field of study that needs to be looked at further if, if we're going to make some of the claims that we're making. Dr. Insall used to say famously, a knee that is not balanced will fail. What's your current state of the art in gap balancing? Do you like your gaps equal? Do you like the a little bit tighter inflection? Do you like it snug all the way around, a little loose? What What are you doing these days? I, I mean, ideally, you, you want something that just feels perfect right, right. And, that, and, and that and that perfect is different in everyone's hands right what i would say is I, i'm a gap balancer it, it doesn't mean that measured resection's wrong it doesn't mean that patients can't do well with it it just the, the concept and philosophy makes sense to me particularly in in, in knees that have more deformity it, it's reproducible for me and so uh i i personally i balance my gap and extension and then I go into flexion. I, I, I've never had anyone say, oh, my gosh, my flexion gap seems a little tight. So if you if you if you if I'm going to error, I would error on keeping them a millimeter or two tighter in flexion. Um, doesn't mean that I always do that, but I, I try to balance it the same way. But if anything, I error leaving a little little tighter in flexion. Uh, I do think leaving it looser in flexion, at least for what they call mid flexion instability or some sort of flexion instability it, it is a problem in some patients. 
Uh, and so I, I typically will not leave my gaps uh, looser in flexion. Uh, if I have a patient that has a, say, a large 20 or 25 degree varus knee, their lateral complex is going to be fairly compromised. I think when you you can chase that gap, but you probably will never get that gap 100% like, oh my gosh, this feels perfectly equal. That is the patient that I may leave in a little constitutional varus because I think they've lived there for a long time, maybe a little varus on the, on the potential tibial component. Um, and uh, I'm talking a couple degrees. I use computer navigation for my knees. So for me, it's easy to say, hey, this is one or two degrees because I can measure it. And that's the patients I do measure. And knowing that, hey, that lateral gap may be one or two millimeters uh, looser than the medial gap. And I, I think a lot of us uh, in practice uh, um, do that and will accept that because, quite frankly, you, you may never catch that gap. Um, and so that, that's been my philosophy. It's, it's worked well for me for, for my follow-up. It doesn't mean it's the only way. It just makes sense in my hands and it's been successful for what I do. Closed suction drain versus no drain. I saw your name on a paper about this subject and uh, I think the paper pretty much concluded there wasn't any difference. Any interoperative tools in your arsenal to minimize post-op bleeding? There's a couple things. So when we started that paper, it, it's actually, a for those who haven't read it, it's a, it's a prospective uh, randomized patient blinded paper with uh, bilateral, you know, um, sim- stage simultaneous total knees where we put a drain deep in, 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 in one. And we actually put a drain on the other side, but we did it superficially without suction. So the patient had a drain in both legs, but we, we wrapped them in bags and they weren't able to see which was what. And so when we pulled the drains out, they both felt like they were being pulled. So they didn't know which had drainage and which didn't. And at the time we started it, there was uh, probably, as you can imagine, having bilateral total knees and patients can sense that takes a little while. When we started that study, there was still a lot of people. If you had people raise their hand at office, there was a large majority of people still using drains. There were some studies more retrospective in nature. I mean, and maybe a few prospectives, but they really looked at Hey, is there more wound healing issues? Is the knee swollen? We we did a whole array of treatments, including, excuse me, a functional performance. So, is the how's the quadriceps? Because we know that if you take the native knee, inject it with saline, twenty to thirty millimeter, twenty to thirty milliliters of, of saline into the knee will actually inhibit the the vastus medialis musculature. Fifty to sixty milliliters will inhibit the vastus lateralis. So, you'd say to yourself, if well, if I had a drain and it was less swelling, maybe at two weeks, I or four weeks or six weeks, I, I have a better quad control because you get better quad control, you get better function, less chance of falls, higher chance of returning to work earlier. So, so there are some downstream effects that weren't really looked at. And, and we did we did a ton of treatments with uh, the University of Colorado and our, and our physical therapy colleagues there uh, who are just fantastic in the research realm. And um, we, we didn't find any differences in strength, no uh, differences in swelling. So none of our parameters, we actually looked at uh, Biomped, which is a, a, mar, uh, a surrogate for lower limb edema and swelling. And so we didn't find anything. Uh, the data came out in 2019. And, and of course, you know, there's been other studies that have been retrospective in nature to kind of support this. But this was a, I think, that, you know, the, the, the prospective study randomized, it really says, look, you, you don't need them. Now, here's the deal. Use common sense. If you got if you got a knee that's bleeding, but you you may want to use or a hip or anything, you may want to use a drain, right? So, are there times that we occasionally use them? Yeah, there's some certain cases, but in general, straightforward primary total knee arthroplasty. I do not use a drain. I don't use a tourniquet, uh, so I get the bleeders as we go. I, I I think that that's one thing that's helpful. I don't use any intraoperative tricks or anything of hey. I know some people use different types of coagulation. Uh, I don't think the expenser has really shown that it, it really uh, decreases the swelling or any type of um, bleeding uh, postoperatively. So I just use my regular technique, don't use a drain, and uh, we've had good success without any adverse effects uh, f- from that since we've started doing that. And that was probably 2015-ish when we really stopped using drains. So one article that really caught my attention, I read it a couple times, it was just fascinating, was the whole concept of a sterile glove handoff versus a direct <laughs> drop and the the particle count under light that you were able to measure uh, between these two strategies. And I guess the takeaway was the sterile glove handoff is what you want to be doing. Tell me how you, you came up with the idea to even look at that. And and your thoughts on it? I have always thought that dumping something on the field just it it 
creeps me out. I, I don't like it. I mean, people are, you know, all nurses do it different. Some of them do it, I think, maybe kind of right. Some people are like shaking stuff over the table. And and I've always, to this day, when, when I open my implants, I actually take my own implant out of the box. I don't let them dump it. So they open it, they hand it, and my team is irrigating and stuff in the background. And I, I take it out personally and, and put it on the table. And this way, there's no dumping. And so I've kind of done the same thing with gloves to the best we can. And uh, two of our fellows, uh, uh, David Holst and Mark Andrew were here. And, and they actually designed the study. But I think they saw some of the stuff, some of the variability in the OR that we were doing. And I, I don't think my partners at the time were doing it. I, I hope they're taking it out now based on the study. I haven't been in their ORs to see. But um, we, we just came up with a pretty simple study. Uh, you know, like I said, I credit our, our fellows, David Holtz, who is at, at uh, Duke uh, currently, and, and Mark Andram is uh, in Chicago. They're both did fantastic here, came up with the design, the uh, you know, the idea based on what they were seeing in our operating room. And to my delight, it, it proved what my thought what my thought had always been is that it's it's a little cleaner putting your hand. And it makes sense, right, because you you, you have a non-sterile person who's dumping it over and, and, and we have, you know, particles that, that could dump out. So we found more particles through the, the 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 fluorescent lights on the field which is a, a written up study and we, we presented that at um at some of our national meetings and we're fortunate enough to have it published in the journal of arthroplasty several years ago so as a colorado resident i think it's only fitting that you've tackled the subject of medical cannabis in an orthopedic practice so what have you discovered along this journey and any surprises well, uh, full disclosure, I, I guess I'm known as the pot guy now. Like everyone always asks, I, I can't go a week without getting called or asked about it, which is, which is fine. So, you know, when I got here, it just, it, the, the, you know, the, the laws in Colorado uh, had changed um, where the medicinal sale as well as legalization of it. So, you know, my, I've always said if there's a research question, you got to figure out if it's a problem. So, I mean, if, if you have, one or two people out of every thousand people that are using marijuana, then it's not even really something to talk about. Right. So, I mean, we've kind of built studies or I've built some studies as time has gone. And so the first one was our people reporting the use of marijuana. And I, you know, we, we looked at before the law and then after, and th- there's some, there's some holes in there. I, I get it with the study, but in general, we, we, we found some interesting things, you know, the, the, it, it increased from one to 11%. Over 500 people we looked at from before the law was passed and after, and we found very typical features of of when you look in the the drug and alcohol abuse. Not to say that this is being abused, but you know, male gender, younger age, smoking status, and a history of you know substance abuse and narcotic abuse are uh, the people that we're going to report it. And and it kind of makes sense if you start to think about it. So so you know, then if you looked at some of these database studies, they're saying well, marijuana or any type of cannabis. And we'll just we'll just call it cannabis because th- there's different things and not to get into THC CBD. But if you if you kind of group it as a whole, you do these large database studies, and uh, interestingly, the they'll say like, well, there's 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 harm if you use it. Well, they, they can't really tease out things like are were they using narcotics or how much narcotics they use and or how much. So I, I went back and looked at just a retrospective study at our institution with total knee patients and. We didn't find uh, any differences in readmissions, reoperations, no difference in range of motion, knee society scores. So, you know, the the, the concept or the, the conclusion is I can't tell you it's beneficial, but I can't tell you it's harmful because it's retrospective. And we looked at narcotic equivalents when they were in the hospital, and and we didn't see a difference in in narcotic equivalents, uh, at least while they were in the hospital. So they, they weren't really require more use, uh, which which is a good thing to know. We have a we have some other studies that, that just got published. It is actually patient perception, and so if you actually ask patients, "Hey, are are you willing to take marijuana prescribed by a physician?" It's about seventy five percent of people are for acute and chronic pain, which means that people kind of want it, right? They, if if you'd offer to them, they want it. And interestingly, in that study, I I, I repolled how many people were using cannabis. So I remember I told you it was eleven percent. Well, three years later, now it's twenty percent of people reporting. It's probably even higher. There's probably people that are too embarrassed to tell you, or for job reasons or insurance reasons, they don't want to be dinged for saying they've used marijuana. So that number is probably a little higher, and that would go with with a lot of the world's literature. So in the end, I can't tell you for or against. Uh, I can tell you that it, it 
I don't think it's been shown, at least for acute pain in the orthopedic literature, to be of any value. I, I will tell you, I'm hopeful to solve that. We've so I mean, if you start to look at the studying, and it's really hard because it's an uncontrolled substance. People are getting it from uh, manufacturers in the community where the amount of THC or CBD is different varieties, different strains, and, and different amounts in each. So you really can't compare, right? It's it's hard. That's the limitations of studies we've done. It's also a scheduled one drug still, interestingly, from the federal government. So your your federal law will supersede state law. So I, I can you can come to Colorado and you might be able to buy and use this, but you can actually be fired from a job, right? If it's a particularly if it's a federal job, it's it's still a scheduled one drug. And, and also, if you start to look at your Medicare status, it's considered a scheduled one drug. So when a patient comes into your clinic, I can't say here take this or prescribe this. So we've we've done a lot of legwork on our end and actually went through the FDA. We have an exemption to actually study a synthetic form of marijuana called uh, Marinol, which is is a, a a drug that's been used for chemotherapy patients to increase appetite and and also decrease nausea. But it, it's it's off label use for acute pain. So we're doing and we've started, COVID actually pushed it back. We were going to start before and probably in the next month we're going to hopefully start our our study because we're kind of back on our feet, but it's a prospective randomized study with a synthetic form of THC versus placebo pills in patient, and we're looking at pain control. So there'll be some will say, well, you're not using CBD. Yeah, I get it, but there, there's that, that, that's a study for later. But we got this through the FDA. We've been approved. To my knowledge, we're the only ones approved for it. It was a, quite a, a process to get there. So I'm hopeful to be able to have this data. It's probably a, a couple-year project, but we'll, we'll go back and look at our numbers every 25 or 30 patients to make sure that we're not having adverse events, to make sure that it's working and to actually look at our numbers. So hopefully this time next year, I can give some report of some preliminary data. So I guess more to come on this, but we don't have the answer of cannabis. There's certainly a lot of testimonials, and there's certainly areas in medicine that we know it works but we can't say that it works in orthopedic uh, patients at this point, at least for acute pain. And, and that's something we really need to, to to figure out because if it does, it's, it's, it really opens the door to maybe decrease narcotic use, right? And, and to decrease some of some of the, the issues that we see with regards to narcotics. So that's kind of where we stand right now. Don't have all the data or the information to say good or bad. There's got to be a lot of people out there that are just wanting it to work so desperately. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I, and I think physicians, if you, if you, we would take anything as an alternative, right? I mean, and uh, and if you look at the side, sure. if you look at the side effect profile for cannabis in general, it it's it's much less quote unquote toxic than a narcotic medication, right? I mean, you don't you don't die for if you take THC compound by itself, compound by itself, it, you're you're not worrying about you know constipation risk. You're not worrying about you know overdosing on it like like a narcotic and things like that. so yeah sh- there's certainly other things you have to worry about but the, the, the side effect profile is is, is certainly different and, and maybe a little more forgiving in the post-operative period my first podcast <laughs> you got it there more to come right <laughs> the the jokes i'm sure you've been on the receiving yeah. end uh i saw a paper that you wrote on sleeves and revisions and now all the companies are coming out with this and I worked with a fellowship-trained revision surgeon one time, and he said something very profound. He said, you're always thinking about your next procedure. And and as I look at this new um, gadget that we can attach to our revision constructs that can help stabilize things, and I, I wonder out loud, what's that operation going to be like uh, getting that out? And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I think when patients, I agree with preparing for your next surgery, but I think that pending the failure mode, sometimes you need the belt and suspenders. And whether it's a cone or a sleeve, uh, I, I think they both have their, their place. I, m- most surgeons are, are probably attached to one or the other. Uh, uh, they are hard. Uh, it can be difficult to get out. We, we've written a paper on the femoral side of, ha- of how to get it out. It's, it's certainly not easy for the sleeve. I've taken cones out as well, which, which are, are certainly not easy. So I agree with you 100. percent I, th- I think you have to use them as they're intended to be used. I, I don't. I don't think putting them in everyone that comes in per se is the right answer from a cost analysis standpoint and from a hey, do you really need it? It's probably uh, not advocated for every patient. But if you look at a patient who came in for a femoral loosening or a tibial loosening or 
they have metaphyseal bone defects. Uh, yes, I, we do think that it can uh, increase longevity and success rate of, of those arthroplasty procedures. Uh, these are obviously surgeon-specific based on their preferences. I think both of them have been shown uh, to have good at least midterm results. Uh, certainly the long-term results for 15 and 20 years are, are, are not there for all of them yet. Uh, there are some changing landscapes with um, companies. I, I agree with you. Companies have gone towards either a cone or a sleeve or both. Uh, some of these are in their infancy. There's different uh, types of modeling they do to for bone ingrowth and a lot of these uh, have not uh, shown to have mid or long-term results. So I think we need to keep a close eye on all the new implants and uh, different designs that are coming out to assure that there's not uh, inherent complications from those. So I think I, 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 I do think moving forward, you will probably have more and more indications for, yes, this is a specific patient. You should always use this specific patient revision. You may not use and these are these in-between patients that intraoperatively uh, can give you a decision-making tree, um, which would be helpful for a lot of surgeons um, coming into practice. Your name, Dr. Jennings, is cited on a lot of papers. Uh, congratulations. You brought up AUKUS earlier for receiving the James Rand Young Investigators Award last year. Do you really enjoy the re research side of orthopedics? Is that a stupid question? I mean, uh, do you obviously love it or is no. it uh, <laughs> yeah. just like the information? No, it's it's not a dumb question. I think there are people that do research um, in academic institutions because I I actually think if you're going to work in an academic institution, a pure academic institution, then that that's that's kind of part of the the job. Uh, I I feel it's my obligation to continue to do research. Uh, you know, I'm in a like I said, a kind of a private academic type institution. Uh, if I have a question, I want an answer. I think if it's a reasonable research project to do, ideally it should be prospectively done. Uh, there's obviously a lot of projects that we do that are ret retrospective. So at any point in time, we try to have one or two prospective studies at our institution that we feel are uh, hopefully unique and, and something a little bit different. Uh, that that James Rand Award, um, honored to even be considered for an AUKUS podium and to, to win that the Rand Award. Dr. Rand put so many contributions into the, the orthopedic world. It's an, an, an honor to be named with other people who've gotten that award. So um, there are, uh, I think if you have a question you, you, you don't have the answer as in my opinion, as at least for what I am and I have the resources, we just, we just try to find the answers if we can in the, in the best way that we can. And so um, I enjoy doing it. I, I think that uh, my partners enjoy doing it. it. It brings up fascinating questions. It's changed my practice, not just from the research I've done, but from a lot of our colleagues are presenting at AUKUS each year you know, you hear the presentations and then you're like, geez, why am I doing that? I never thought of that. And then you, you start to do something different and it does make a difference in your practice. So um, it's really for our patients, right? In the end, if you, if you don't have people and I don't think everyone needs to do research, I think if you're not passionate about it, you probably shouldn't be doing it. And it's just like anything in life. If you if you don't have the passion for it, the desire to do it, it you're not going to put good product out and you're just not going to put all the effort into it. So for those of us that are, I, it, it's it's helpful for not only our patients, but it, it influences other people's practices. And we're proud to say that. I mean, our that Rand Award, I, I've gotten multiple, uh, you know, emails about, hey, what's your protocol? Can you send the paper over and things like that? And so knowing that other people are using what we've done here and just from an idea that we were brainstorming about and, and you know, that brainstorming started, I think, in 2014 or 15, that people are emailing and and, and asking questions about it still is um, is, is such an honor, and we're, we're happy that we're able to change some people's practices in a positive way. I've heard a lot of passion uh, throughout this series on Operation Walk. Just tell me a little bit about your connection with this uh, with this organization and your passion behind that. Yeah, Operation Walk, as you know, uh, is uh, many chapters. I, I'm part of the Denver chapter. Uh, my partner, Doug Dennis, uh, started this chapter many years ago after uh, um, getting mentorship from from Larry Dore and seeing what Larry Larry had done uh, in California. Uh, we, we go on two trips a year. We've done over 1,700 uh, free total joint replacements uh, outside of the United States. Um, and happy to say that, that we can, outside of COVID, we continue to do it uh, two trips a year. And sometimes we do some side trips when they, when they need us. So sometimes a third trip. I, I personally try to go on every trip that I can. 
Uh, it's very rewarding. Uh, my, my wife's a physical therapist, so it's great. She gets to come on uh, trips with me. She typically comes once a year, once every couple of years. And uh, we get to kind of enjoy that experience together. I, we've had a great bonding experience. As you know, a lot of the chapters will bring other surgeons uh, from outside of their institution. So I get to operate with other surgeons that come in. You certainly get to teach the surgeons down in Central and South America and these places that where they come in your operating room and they, they operate with you. They have medical students and people that are residents and they come in and kind of get to see the things that we do. And I mean, you really get to change people, people's lives in a, in a different way. I mean, these are people that don't have access to healthcare uh, and, and they've been suffering for quite some time. And, and you, you, you just, it's, it's just a completely different experience. I, for those listening to this podcast that have never uh, been on a mission before with, with Operation Walk, if you can really find a chapter to go with and uh, all of us are willing to take um, a guest with us, it's, it's a life-changing experience. I mean, it, it really is. And so um, I, there's, there's certainly other chapters that, that have contributed uh, just as much as the Denver chapter. And when you get all of us in a room, we're, we're all, everyone lights up, you know, you talk to Aaron Hoffman about it, I've talked to Keith Barron, like other people that have been on these trips, they, they, all these other chapters have, they're, they're just so happy for, for the, the amount of help they can do to patients. It's really the way medicine should be practiced, right? You, in America and just probably other countries, you got to think about the finances, you think about the, you know, the, 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 the paperwork and, you know, all this other stuff. And here you, you go down, you meet patients, or, you know, their families are there. They're, they're very grateful. Not to say that other people aren't grateful, but it's just, it's just different, right? Cause those, they, they never really had a chance and an opportunity and you really give them this, this second chance there, which is a little bit different. So, um, and then I think the relationships, again, you've heard me mention relationships a lot. We have multiple surgeons at different institutions that we've had the chance to form these relationships with. And, and we continue to have those with them outside the United States, which is a very special bond as well. Quick uh, advice corner. Uh, any advice that uh, you'd like to lend out there to surgeons just coming out of their fellowship? And number two, any advice to the reps that listen to the show and what makes uh, a good rep? What makes somebody that's on my side of the table stand out to you? So, Yeah, I, I, those are great questions. I mean, there's not a secret for both. There's not a secret formula, right? So, right. I'll, I, you know, for, for the for the surgeons, I, I I just say be you. I mean, I, I if if you take care of the patients and you treat the patients well, everything else is going to take care of themselves, right? You're gonna True. you're gonna have a learning curve. No one is a, a Jedi when they come out, and and you, you gotta you gotta be willing to physically and mentally get through that challenge. I mean, I, I think the first handful of years is like drinking through a fire hose. You there's all these experiences that, that you never, you kind of saw, but you never really had to endure your own complications. Patients coming back, maybe where you put something in perfect and it's, it's, it's not perfect. I'm more of a conversationalist. So the way I'm talking to you now is what I talk to my patients, but it doesn't mean that that's the right way. It's just the way it's, it's, it's a way to do it. It's the way I do it. So I always tell the fellows, be you, you don't have to be me. Like go and figure out your own style, figure out how much time you want to spend with patients, figure Figure out how you're going to talk to people about complications, and and I think I think you just put things together, and I, I think what it all comes down to in the end, no one should treat the patient better than you can. My fellows and my partners have heard me say this: you should feel like you're treating the patient better than anyone, and that that includes my partners. I tell my partners they should feel like they treat patients better than me, and and if you don't feel that way, then you're doing something wrong. If if you're treating the patients as best you can, and you're taking care of the patient, everything else will take care of itself. And so that's the advice I give all young surgeons and fellows that come through. And, you know, we, we train a lot of fellows and they, the fellows, if my fellows listen, they've heard me say it a thousand times. Like, just treat the patient well, take care of the patient, treat them like no one else can, and, and everything will take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Everything else will take care of itself. For, for the reps, it's easy. Just be prepared, right? Like, you know, I mean, know when to ask questions. I, I'm I, you know, you should you should be involved, and, and you need to feel your surgeon out. So, and every surgeon is different. Some people want you to come in and template. I personally do my own template. I like to, you know. And so, I think be involved, be yourself, and and figure out what your that surgeon particularly may want. There's certain people that want certain things. For me, it's be ready. And you know, my reps will tell you, you. They're like, what do you want? I was like, go ask my operating room team. They're the ones setting stuff up. They're the ones doing everything. So for me, it's make my OR team. I have two great, fantastic teams. I run two rooms and 
I mean, the reps, if my reps are listening, they'll tell you, it, it, we have great efficiency, just like a lot of other surgeons do, but we have a very nice bond and, and we all get along. And I say, look, they're going to tell you what, you what I need. Just go ask them. And then, you know, if there's big things, for instance, if you, if you're missing a size, I mean, the, the time to tell someone is not in the middle of the place when you're like making cuts, right? Like you, you need to pick up the phone, say, you know what? I, we don't have this size either there, you know, it's COVID there's a manufacturing issue or, you know, we, we ran out of it last week and I didn't restock it. Just own it. Right. I mean, don't, don't tell a surgeon in the middle of the case. It's not the time to tell someone. So you, at the time to tell them is before the case. So they say, Hey, I don't have a size three. And you say, well, gosh, I'm doing this total need that looks like it might need a size three. Well, do you have a two, two and a half or whatever other side? Like, what do you have? What do you don't have? Let's talk about it before I open up a, a knee or a hip. And, 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 and you, I mean, the end game is do no harm. And so I think we all swing on that. So I think feel your surgeon out, feel your community out, whoever you're working with. Everyone's a little bit different. There's no magic formula. As I've said a couple times on this podcast, I do things a way. I have I have a reason that I do everything. I have the literature to support it. There's some things that aren't in the literature, right? And that's just how you're going to treat patients and how you're going to how you're going to treat your staff and your reps. And so the the representatives need to to figure out the 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 OR team, the surgical team, you know, the actual surgeon preferences, and and then it, it's a, it's a bond. It's a rela- to me, it's a two way street. It's not just about me. I ask the rep what they need. So. Some surgeons don't do that, and it doesn't mean they're wrong. I just say, is there something I can do for you? What what can I make for your job easier? What about this? What about that? And so, I, I for me, it's a two way street. It's a relationship. I mean, it, you know, it's work, so I want them to enjoy their job as well. So, I don't know if that's good advice or bad advice, but I, I think that everyone should be kind of on this on on this on the same team, and, and we're all trying to do one thing. That's always for the patient. So great stuff. So many opportunities for outdoor activities in Denver. Uh, anything in particular you like to do outside uh, the OR in the clinic? Well, I spend a lot of time with my family. Uh, I'll tell you my, my goal. It, I, I don't cut corners, but I, I try to leave work around four to four thirty every day. Uh, go home, take my kids to their sports. They, they 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 do more than I think double that w- my wife and I did, but that's good for them, and I want them to enjoy it. So I spend a lot of time watching things outside what they do, and uh, I, that's fun for me. I always tell them they're my two favorite athletes. So uh, I, t- I tell them if they stop it, I don't have anyone to cheer for. So they 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 have a lot of fun. We, we we go up to the mountains quite a bit. We do skiing and snowboarding. I I, I recent I have a Peloton and and I've been known to ride quite often. But I three months ago just bought a road bike and I've been doing quite a bit of biking outdoors on the trails and have started to enjoy that. So every couple of years I try to pick up a new hobby and my, my new one is outdoor biking. So, uh, I'm enjoying that. And obviously the, the biking is a little hard. So I, I, I want to spend time with my family. So I'm the, the maniac that's out at six thirty or seven in the morning when it's still cool and chilly out here with long sleeves and gloves on so that I can ride and be home with my family at a reasonable time. So, well, as somebody who's just a, ahead of you a little bit in terms of the, the child age and all that, I, I promise you, that time that you're putting in with them now will pay dividends down the road. So you're doing the right stuff. I hope so. They, they're they at the age where they like to complain about me being around sometimes. So I, I kind of have to back off. They're 10 and 8, so they start to get embarrassed when I drop them <laughs> off. But that's okay. Now I just I just bring a book or something. I go sit somewhere else and read. Well, it's like a friend of mine told me in Alaska one time. He said, if you don't like the weather, just wait an hour. Yep. Uh, this, this stuff tends to come around. So. Yep. Dr. Jennings, you have quite a rearview mirror thus far in your career, and I sincerely look forward to great things from you down the road. Great work. Thank you so much for for coming on the show to share your life with me and my audience. Yeah, the pleasure's mine. Thank you. What an inspirational conversation, and what an honor to get to speak to Dr. Jennings today. I picked up a lot of great things. I loved his graciousness as he talked about other people. I want to be that same person when people ask about this person or that person, to have that same level of just speaking in the most positive terms about the people that I've gotten the chance to work alongside. I loved his advice to reps about not 
communicating things in the middle of the case. That's fair to no one. And the whole concept of him asking the rep what he could do to help out, I mean, that just blew my mind. Uh, But it was inspiring to me that I need to be asking that question of my customers. Is there anything else I could be doing that would help you do your job better? What can I be doing? Just really inspirational stuff and so thankful that he took time to come on the show today. Speaking of thankful, I wanted to leave you with a couple Thanksgiving quotes that I thought were just awesome. Reflect on your present blessings, of which every man has many, not on your past misfortunes, of which all men have some. Charles Dickens. I really like that one. Here's a great one. An optimist is a person who starts a new diet on Thanksgiving Day. I love this quote by Irma Bombeck. I come from a family where gravy is a beverage. How about this one from friends? It wouldn't be Thanksgiving without a little emotional scarring. You know, I'm going into my family situation this this coming week, and if we can just make it out and it doesn't end in fisticuffs, then it is a successful Thanksgiving. I love this Oscar Wilde quote. After a good dinner, one can forgive anybody, even one's own relations. My favorite quote is, we must find time to stop and thank the people who make a difference in our lives. John F. Kennedy. So number one, I want to stop and thank the amazing guests who have come on our show, the most recent being uh, Dr. Jason Jennings. Just incredible people that we've gotten to hear from, whether it's been other reps, authors, surgeons, whatever. They've shared so much that have impacted my life and impacted your life. And I just want to stop for a minute and say thank you. And I also want to stop for a minute and thank you, the listener Uh, the Device Nation family. I'm so appreciative. This show is for you, and it's about you, and you're the ones who make it great. I love your feedback. Don't ever stop that. So much of what I do on the show is the result of what I've heard from you saying, I think you should do this and do that, and uh, this show is ever-changing. I hope it's not the same a year from now because uh, I'm going to continue to listen and modify to make it something that you get value out of uh, taking time out of your day. So a real big thank you. I am so appreciative that you're out there listening today. So as we go into our Thanksgiving week, here's a couple of things I wanted to share that might help. Number one, wear scrub pants. You get a lot of room for future expansion after that seventh piece of pecan pie. And yeah, that's how you correctly pronounce that. Number two, can somebody out there just try to convince one person that boiling the turkey is a good idea? Report your findings on a DM to me. Lastly, don't bring politics into the conversation. If somebody else does, look at your phone and say, oh, i got to take a call. Trust me on this. You don't want it to end in fisticuffs. And I hope you all have an awesome Thanksgiving. Most importantly, be safe. 